Hello and welcome to this EMJ podcast, where today we're discussing the latest developments in gene therapy for haemophilia. How viable is the therapy? What's new? What's coming up? This podcast has been funded by a Pfizer educational grant in which the position and discussions might not represent the position of Pfizer. I'm Sue Saville, former medical correspondent at Britain's ITV News and now an independent health journalist. And I'm delighted to be joined by two distinguished experts on haemophilia and gene therapy. Margaret Ozelu is Associate Professor at the Internal Medicine Department and Director of the Haematology Division at the University of Campinas, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And Radek Kazmarak is Postdoctoral Research Associate, Gene and Cell Therapy Group, IU School of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics in Indianapolis, USA, and himself someone born with haemophilia. Welcome to you both. Very happy to be here. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, Sue. Thank you, Sue. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So it's great, great to have you both online. Now, we might think of gene therapy for haemophilia as being cutting-edge innovation, but I was really interested to learn that, in fact, it's been under evaluation for some 30 years now. Finding out how effectively it might deliver the functional F8 gene for those with type A or the functional F9 gene for those with type B haemophilia which I understand enables the production of proteins that reduce or stop spontaneous bleeding and then the resultant pain, joint disease, disability and even premature death. And indeed that more than a decade now, the adeno-associated virus, AAV vector, has been used to transfer these functioning genes, known as transgenes, into patients. So it's been going on a long while, but where are we now? Margaret, using first names, if I may, you've been involved in phase three trials. You presented your results. What are your key findings? Okay, so, well, uh, happy to share this, uh, what we are seeing now. As you said, for many years, uh, we are pursuing this idea for gene therapy for hemophilia. And uh, finally, I think for now, we have actually a good strategy that is based in the AV vector, an associated virus that is uh, delivered to the liver cells. Uh, so with that, we have several programs, uh, gene, uh, uh, clinical trials that is in advanced phase, phase three clinical trials for either hemophilia A and hemophilia B. And uh, some of the results are really, really encouraging. Uh, I will say about the hemophilia A program, what we are seeing is uh, most of the patients achieve the normal levels of uh, factor eight, that is the, the, the coagulation factor that is deficient in the hemophilia A uh, patients. And the, uh, especially not only uh, for the factor eight expression, but particularly for the clinical outcomes. These patients uh, had the, uh, most of them had zero bleeds for the follow-up. Now we, we are approaching the third year of the follow-up for this clinical trial, and it's most of the patients, close to 70% of them, had no bleeding at all. So this is very encouraging. For the hemophilia B programs, we have several uh, also programs that uh, clinical trials, uh, particularly phase three and uh, even the phase one and two that has a longer follow-up. And we are seeing the, the, the similar result 
with uh, several patients in the normal levels of the factor nine, uh, and uh, of the uh, and for them, for sure, uh, we can see that this is more stable. This factor nine expression and uh, similar than factor eight. Most of the patients had no bleeding at all since they uh, were enrolled in these clinical trials uh, involving gene therapy. So that's really encouraging. And did you get consistent results across patients or is there some variation? Yeah, this is actually a very good question because for both hemophilia A and B, one thing that we are seeing is a variability of the expression. There are patients that really reach normal levels of factor eight or nine, uh, but the other ones has a lower expression levels and sometimes uh, not uh, uh, what we expect in terms of uh, any expression at all or very uh, low expression that will not really change their lives for, for a long period of time. So uh, one thing that is really a challenge here, we cannot predict uh, uh, the patient who will have a good expression and some of them actually have overexpression, what can be a challenge in, in, in the other point of view, but some of them can uh, can have lower expression and we, we cannot really predict which one will be uh, in each level. And this is one thing that the field is uh, work on it uh, to understand better. That, that's really interesting. And Radek, as someone yourself born with hemophilia and as a scientist, I guess you've seen many false starts and the promise of a bleed-free life along the way, perhaps that wish of a, a cure. What's that journey been like for you and, and what now gives you hope? Uh, yes, so um, hemophilia is a, is a rare example of a rare disease uh, where you can see such a dramatic difference in the quality of life between individuals who have access to uh, effective treatment uh, and those who don't. Um, it is also a disease that um, happened to always have been at the forefront, forefront of uh, groundbreaking developments in transfusion medicine initially, uh, then in biochemistry, and in the last few decades in uh, molecular biology. Um, most of that journey uh, led to basically better ways of replacing the missing clotting factor and thus uh, uh, narrowing the gap between how much hemostatic correction a therapy can provide and how much is needed to live a life independent of treatment. Um, a hemophilia field has been revolutionized more than once in the past, and uh, the ongoing molecular revolution, if you will, uh, is another one. Uh, you could argue that gene therapy is the pinnacle of that revolution because it holds promise of um, normalizing hemostasis. Uh, this is something really that uh, no other therapy has so far been able to offer. Uh, the uh, uh, standard prophylactic factor replacement therapy uh, uh, can't do that. Uh, it's characterized by CISO pharmacokinetics, which means that uh, patients spend a um, considerable amount of time being poorly protected from bleeding. Um, other options, even if they do offer a steady state level of protection from bleeds, they, they, they still do not normalize hemostasis. Gene therapy can fix both of those problems and really deliver on that aspiration to live a life without any additional hemostatic treatment whatsoever. And that hope has been alive for decades in the community. As far back as 1990s, the community believed that the cure was five years away. And it took another couple of decades to make this promise tangible. And, and now we are closer than ever, although it is not exactly the cure 
if you will, that the community has historically desired, uh, at least not yet. But that sounds really exciting, but it sounds as though you feel we're on the brink. But it was interesting, Margaret there referred to needing to find out more about, for instance, which patients are going to respond. And uh, in one of your own papers, Radek, you uh, posed the question, is robust scientific inquiry the missing factor for gene therapy in haemophilia? What conclusion did you come to? I would say that it is to an extent uh, a, a missing factor. So um, I think uh, we can we can say that in the rush to to commercialization, sometimes we see a little overly optimistic views uh, on the benefits and risks of gene therapy, um, as much as it has shown great promise and continues to do so. But now I think the time has come that really uh, for us to really uh, abandon such Panglossian thinking, if you will. There are many unknowns and many questions to be answered to ensure safety and, and improve outcomes in the long term. We need to acknowledge the shortcomings and, and keep working to refine the approach. So on those shortcomings, on the safety aspect, Margaret, what would you say are the potential downsides that need to be addressed? I think... Uh, as we already, uh, already discussed, the, uh, gene therapy is not uh, a new concept. But during these years, uh, of course, we uh, nowadays we have the opportunity to have more patients that uh, had the opportunity to receive this kind of treatment. And uh, of course, in terms of the safety, uh, especially for the long-term safety, we needed to follow up uh, these patients for a long period of time. There are some risks. Uh, I just mentioned briefly, although this, I think, is the, the, the not the, uh, the most concerned risk, is even the overexpression for factor 8 or, or for factor 9, because if, uh, in one hand, we have patients with the deficiency of these factors, they have bleed. The ones that can have overexpression of these factors, they can even uh, can expose them to more risk for thrombosis. Although this risk uh, seems to be for a few patients and for a short period of time. But there is no doubt about the liver inflammation uh, and the, the liver uh, enzymes levels that increase over time. This can be for several reasons. One is for even uh, some immune response related to the vector and related to um, uh, the cells that can be in a stress because they are now producing a, a protein in a very high level. Uh, and this is something that we needed to follow quite close, uh, closely uh, in these patients. There is another uh, potential risk that is uh, what we call integration and the, the potential risk to, to be close to oncogenes if it is happened. Uh, although the AV vector, the ones that we are using in all these clinical trials that uh, uh, is uh, currently uh, happening for, for hemophilia, they are known uh, as a known integration uh, vector. A part of this DNA, this transgene, can integrate in the cell host uh, genome. And uh, we are all, always aware about if this happens, if we increase the potential risk for cancer or other uh, no desired situations. So I think there are two uh, main issues in terms of the safety. One is uh, in the short term and the, for sure I think this immune response and this liver inflammation is the main issue related to that and in terms of the long term 
safety. I think there are things that just the time will help us to understand better and probably this uh, integration and even the efficacy in terms of the durability for how long this expression uh, will stand there. Thank you for that summary of those issues. So, so Radek, you, you touched on perhaps the, the rush to commercialization with the issues that Margaret highlights there. How much of this can be and should be communicated to patients who might want to try this new therapy? To, to make an informed decision, uh, patients need to understand uh, what they are signing up for, of course. And with gene therapy, it's a really uh, a big challenge to, uh, you know, to deliver the concept and then... Um, in the way that they can understand, it's it's a it's a very new approach. Still, it's it's complex. It's difficult to understand all those issues. I think one of the most challenging issues to relay will be uh, the unpredictability that Margaret mentioned before. Uh, we really, at this point, have no way of knowing uh, what factor level an, an individuals will end up with. For most individuals, there will be great benefit. Most individuals so far have ended up in, in moderate and mild ranges of hemophilia uh, factor levels, but uh, there is no guarantee. And each and any individual may well have no response whatsoever to the therapy um, uh, or go uh, way above the upper limit of normal. And um, it's a kind of gamble that the patient will have to take when they sign up. So, Radek, what would you say would be the, the clinical outcomes or even lifestyle outcomes that you'd regard as baseline for saying it's successful? Well, uh, th there is actually a core outcome set for gene therapies that has been developed uh, and agreed upon with the involvement of patients, uh, uh, clinicians, uh, researchers, drug developers, uh, regulators and payers. I guess it's probably unique in the number of different perspectives involved. Uh, and importantly, uh, patient involvement ensured that uh, efficacy outcomes were both meaningful and relevant to those uh, living with hemophilia. Um, those core outcomes also include uh, safety events, including liver toxicity, um, uh, described by uh, Margaret, uh, immune responses to transgene and capsid, uh, thrombosis, development of other disorders, um, uh, vector integration into host genome, uh, duration of vector neutralizing responses, and uh, cause of death. In terms of efficacy, the view was uh, that circulating factor level is the key determinant in the success of gene therapy, and personally, I couldn't agree more. Uh, factor level correlates with other measures um, uh, of efficacy and has been used for decades to guide clinical practice. There is really no reason why we would look at something else uh, in gene therapy. That's really interesting. And to hear then, Margaret, about this unpredictability that you've both touched on, uh, what about uh, the sort of groups of people who, who might be excluded? Because it's not for everyone, is it? Who might not be suitable for gene therapy for haemophilia? Yeah, so for now, uh, all the clinical trials uh, are involving only adult patients older than 18 years of age. There are some uh, reasons for that. Of course, uh, in this development process, this is uh, a common uh, procedure to enroll more uh, adult patients, but particular in the strategy that is also using uh, AV direct to liver, there is also another uh, reason why we have some concerns in terms to uh, enroll pediatric patients. Uh, of course, uh, hemophilia is a genetic uh, disease, uh, and uh, since the, the childhood, this patient starts to have problems. But the thing is, if, uh, because AV is not a, a 
virus that will integrate it to the host uh, uh, genome. Uh, if the liver grows, if the size divides, so we can dilute the effect because these uh, daughter cells will not uh, have the same um, uh, transgene that the first the, the, the first cells received. So um, this is one thing that, uh, of course, probably uh, not for very young children uh, will have the benefit, but uh, some older and adolescents may this effect will be not a concern. And I think this, uh, there are groups that think about what is uh, the, the age for that. Uh, but we needed to also say that gene therapy for hemophilia has uh, not only this strategy, there are other potential vectors that can be used, other potential strategies, and even for the AEV, uh, right now, we have some limitations in terms to redose the patient. So uh, right now is more uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that once the patient receives the vector, he develops some immune response, uh, uh, he develops some uh, antibodies that can uh, compromise for a redose uh, later on. But we uh, have groups that is also working for the possibility to even to read this redose or different strategies, different vectors uh, to to actually uh, this became available. I will say that pediatric patients, but of course all the protocols is also just discussing about uh, uh, men with uh, hemophilia, that's of course is more than 95 or, or even more uh, percent of the cases, but uh, I think it, over time we will have the opportunities to think about a specific group of patients that will also benefit from gene therapy. Yes, and Roderick, what about those uh, who might uh, present with neutralizing antibodies if they've come into contact already with the, the virus that's used in the vector? They might not even know about it. Does that happen? That's a big problem indeed, Sue, uh, because uh, AAV is a, also a natural virus. I mean, the virus that's the, 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 the vectors that we use in gene therapy are based on uh, occurs naturally in the environment and many individuals will have come in contact with it over their lives without even knowing it because it's a benign virus does not cause any any symptoms uh, when you get infected but you do uh, develop uh, immune response uh, once you once you get infected and that um, uh, immunity uh, persists uh, over many years um, and so many individuals will have neutralizing antibodies uh, and we are talking about a big proportion of uh, of the populations i mean depending on on, on geography we're talking somewhere between 25 to as, as many as 50 percent of people who will uh, not be eligible as a result because those uh, antibodies basically will uh, uh, stop the vectors from uh, reaching their targets the, the target cells uh, where they uh, need to settle in to initiate uh, factor expression Picking up on the point then that Margaret made, if that is such a factor then, this uh, ex exposure to the virus in the vector, Margaret, you mentioned that other potential vectors could be used. Uh, so I'm sure a lot more work to, to be done. What would you say, Margaret, are the, the key areas that the pharmaceutical companies, the research organizations should be focusing on in order to take this therapy forwards? 
Yeah, well, I think there are uh, room for several different strategies. Uh, one can be even uh, related to different uh, vectors, uh, as lint uh, vector is, is one of that has been used in other uh, approaches. Also, even uh, with AEV or not, using different strategies, for example, gene editing. Is, is also something that is new and we are seeing that there are some of the groups here that is uh, developing uh, some of the strategies for that. And even the cells, the target cells, right now we are targeting the hepatocytes, the liver cells, but there are other cells in the liver, the ones that is more related to the vessels in the liver that seems to be for, uh, specifically for factor eight, that is the, the probably the cell that can uh, bring some, some uh, advantage once uh, is the, the nature cells that produce factor eight. Uh, I think there are several strategies, several protocols that is seen uh, even for another uh, approach. For example, patients with inhibitor and factor eight or nine is also another room. Uh, patients with inhibitors are the patients with hemophilia that de develop antibodies anti factor eight or factor nine. And even from them, I think gene therapy can also be one of uh, the target as, as a, a possibility for, for treatments. And this is, there are several different protocols, specific protocols that is uh, looking for a different group of patients and different strategies. And I wonder, Radek, given the, the scandal of the contaminated blood that we saw in the, what was it, 70s, 80s, even 90s, are, are patients reluctant then to, to take part in trials, to trust doctors, to trust the big pharmaceutical companies? Is, is there a reluctance, a hesitation there? Uh, I, I wouldn't think so, Sue. Uh, I would say that uh, people with hemophilia uh, in general are a, a very tight-knit, uh, resilient and well-organized community. The disaster of contaminated blood uh, certainly left a strong safety legacy in the community. But on the other hand, gene therapy has such a special place in the community as that ultimate holy grail that we've been uh, waiting for for decades that uh, I would say patients remain optimistic. Uh, now, there may be hesitance with the uncertainties as there are with any new therapy and also uh, in developed countries, there are some new drugs available that offer good efficacy. So some patients may choose to, to wait and see, but then again, some may want to take a crack at potentially achieving the curative levels in the long term. And that's okay, uh, as long as they understand what they are signing up for. Um, it's important to acknowledge the uncertainties and address them. And I think as long as the different stakeholders demonstrate commitment to that, I think patients will be sanguine about the prospects, pardon the pun. <laughs> and you mentioned, Radek, you talked about this gene therapy possibly being the pinnacle of the latest revolution. Do you, do you see that step towards the holy grail you referred to? Is it going to be sort of incremental or will we see a sudden paradigm shift? I, I think we will evolve. I, I think we will continue to see incremental improvements for AEV uh, platform. I think we'll see um, other iterations of AEV gene therapy. Uh, it, it probably has limits that will make us switch to something else. But uh, having said that, there is plenty of room for, for improvement. I think improving vectorology and, and transduction uh, efficiency could really help uh, lower the doses required to achieve therapeutic expression. Toxicities, at least to some extent, are dose-related, and, and we could probably avoid or minimize um, uh, those toxicities if we were able to administer less vector. 
So, uh, so I think um, uh, there will be a lot of work going that direction. Um, it is important to understand that while it has taken decades to the point that we are able to achieve meaningful expression, it was very difficult to get here. Still, uh, and we are achieving meaningful expression now, still AAV gene transfer is an extremely inefficient process at the current state of the art, with less than 1% of the vector uh, dose settling in the target cells and expressing the transgene. The rest is lost at the many different steps of the journey to the nucleus. We, we got to understand that it's a, uh, a very complex uh, a journey that DAV has to complete to uh, initiate expression. Biosynthesis of uh, a factor before it happens requires that the vector reaches the target cell, the hepatocyte at this point, uh, enters, enters the cell, travels to the nucleus, encodes its genetic payload, which then undergoes a complex reassembly by the cellular machinery. Uh, to permit transcription and translation of the transgene product. And finally, once the transgene product, uh, i.e. the coagulation factor protein, emerges uh, out the other side, it has to go through multiple maturation steps before it exits the cell to perform its function. And each of these steps may depend on individual sets of, of genetic and environmental factors, as well as vector design um, uh, aspects. Some of these steps might be druggable drug, with uh, existing pharmaceuticals, which perhaps could, could uh, also uh, partially reduce the uh, toxicity and variability of expression, probably not eliminated. And, and this is one of the areas that we only scratch the surface on. There's a lot of research to do. Gosh, so, yes, plenty of work for researchers mm -hmm. like yourself then. So less than 1% of them getting through, it sounds like patients' hopes and expectations are, are not yet being met by the scientific advances. But, but what's coming up, Margaret? Have we got any regulatory issues on the horizon that might uh, take this forward? I think we are ready to move forward because now uh, we have several patients that already received gene therapy for at least more than two years, three years in some uh, programs. So... Um, few months from now, we expect to hear some feedbacks from uh, EMEA, the European Regulatory Agency, probably first for Hemophilia A program, but we hope, uh, according to, to what we hear from that, I, I'm... I'm sure for hemophilia B, we'll just follow that. So, so I, I think we, we have hope that, that soon uh, something will change in this uh, for our field in terms of how the, the gene therapy can move forward. And of course, even once there is approval and these therapies ca can go ahead, it's a question of access, isn't it? It's a question of actually making that get through to the patients. And I understand you both have wide experience in various countries, um, Margaret, Brazil, and studied in Canada, Radex from Poland, now working in the USA. So, so what sort of discrepancies of access have you seen and how might this impact the, the rollout of gene therapy? What would you say, Radek? Hemophilia care in Poland has improved remarkably over my lifetime, uh, but in terms of access to new therapies, it has largely lagged behind uh, Western European countries and the US. Um, and, and that's a problem in many uh, uh, low and middle income as well as um, um, between middle and high income countries. And also let's not forget that majority of, of patients from countries with limited resources have no uh, access even to the uh, standard replacement therapy. Price of gene therapy will be a big factor uh, uh, that will determine the uptake globally. And it is important to provide it as an option, not only in the developed countries, but also to, to those underprivileged. And Margaret, what about your experience in Latin America? 
Yes, I think it's a very important uh, issue here because, you know, although for, especially nowadays, that we have so uh, different options uh, for the treatment of hemophilia, even uh, sub-Q and uh, no replacement factors that is uh, quite attractive for uh, several uh, developed countries, there are different scenarios. And I will say that, for example, uh, in Latin America and as an example in Brazil, Although we can provide the standard of care for hemophilia, that's prophylaxis, especially uh, since their childhood, uh, there are room for uh, gene therapy or other possibilities uh, as we can make this the access of this kind of treatment. I would say that my patients are way more uh, interested with this possibility. There are some advantages in terms of, you know, uh, for for the patients who who works well, who succeed in the treatment that uh, with only a single infusion has a a good level to protect uh, them for uh, several uh, years of their life. And uh, we needed to think about the strategies to make this available. I think now we are in the level that we are also discussing how we can guarantee the access for this treatment, especially in places where we don't have all the, the very attractive options for hemophilia care. And as uh, we draw to a close, I'd love to ask each of you to say briefly, what what would your dream be? What would you love to see in the coming years in terms of what gene therapy might do for haemophilia radic? I think I mentioned in the beginning, um, historically, we've been looking to closing the gap between uh, how much protection from bleeding a therapy can provide and and what is needed to live a life independent of treatment. And, And I think it's still... The aspiration of the community for the gene therapy to to be the functional cure to really close that gap once and once and done uh, where where you can uh, take the vector and not need any additional hemostatic treatment uh, whatsoever uh, so that's that's definitely a hope and also to um, make it an option not only in the developed countries but globally because um, in many of those countries, gene therapy may be actually the only viable solution in the absence of immediate prospects for, for improvement of care otherwise. And Margaret, what's your dream? Well, I would say that for all these years that I'm involved with hemophilia care for more than 25 years, when I started uh, with my patients here in Brazil, I have no much to offer to them. And I was in a situation that was... Uh, really uh, not uh, comfortable. And uh, although nowadays we can offer better treatment, I can see that there are rooms for, for them to, to improve and to improve their quality of life and to have a life that some of the patients just tell me that their expectations is not to think about hemophilia all the time. So I think it's not only to prevent the bleeding problems, but also to give them the chance to have what we can say a normal life. And I really believe that gene therapy is one of the options that can guarantee. Uh, saying that, I think it, personally, what I uh, really hope 
and using the quote from the uh, WFH, the World Federation of Hemophilia, we hope to have treatment for all. We need to provide for all patients, no matter where they are, uh, to have access to uh, this possibility to live a normal life and to be able to do uh, exercises and physical activities with, without thinking about the risk of bleeding all the time. Well, thank you both so much, uh, Margaret Ozello and Radek Kazmarek. You've really both made this such an interesting discussion. It's so exciting to hear your thoughts about the challenges and the exciting opportunities ahead for this potentially transformative gene therapy in haemophilia. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to, to discuss with Radek uh, here and with you, so about one of the, the topics that we much appreciate. It was a pleasure, uh, Sue and Margaret. Uh, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. And for listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear other episodes on a variety of health topics, do visit the EMJ website. That's at www.emjreviews.com. There's plenty there that could spark your interest. So meanwhile, from me and from our guests, bye for now. Bye.